0: For 11 days this spring, the Hamas terrorist organization rained hundreds of rockets down on Israel in what became known as Israel's latest Gaza war. The conflict became a platform for unprecedented levels of attacks on Israel in the United States, from far-left political leaders, influencers, and activists. Months later, the debate rages on, with no historian or academic taking the time to unpack exactly what occurred
1: until now. Joining us this week, Dr. Jonathan Chancer, Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, who's out with a new book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War.
0: Don't push pause, you're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we covered the Gaza War back in the spring. Uh, We recall a great episode with uh, Elliot Abrams, uh, who broke it down with us uh, while it was going on. Uh, We also had some Jewish leaders. join us as well during that time live from Israel. We covered the so-called war between the wars a lot, but no one's really done a deep dive in a careful academic way to understand what happened, separate the fact from fiction, uh, sort of memorialize it, and importantly take away lessons learned. So I think it's going to be a great opportunity to have the author of the very first book on this year's Gaza War join the podcast.
1: Yeah, I I agree, Rich, and I'm really excited. I think it's always a good thing after the dust has settled, so to speak, to take a look about what happened, where the coverage was wrong, where the coverage was right, what it means for regional uh, stability or lack of regional stability, and tying together all the various issues that are happening in the Middle East right now.
0: Without further ado, let's, uh, let's bring on our guest. Jonathan Chanzer is Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He previously worked as a terrorism finance analyst at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. He's held positions at the Washington Institute and the Middle East Forum. His latest book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War, challenges and corrects some of the wildly inaccurate news reported during the conflict earlier this year. It is the first book published on the war, and Dr. Schanzer is with us today to talk to us about it. John Chanzer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rich. Uh, I want to start with a key line from the book. Uh, I'm going to quote you here. Uh, For me, the disconnect between reporting and reality was more fundamental. It ignored the history. While Hamas's leadership undeniably makes its decisions independently, the group is the product of its patrons over the years, the Islamic Republic and Iran the most influential. You've written books, John, on Hamas before. Who or what is Hamas today?
2: Hamas is many things to many people or many regimes. Um, It is one of Iran's most important proxies based in the Gaza Strip. It is also a proxy of um, Turkey. It's a proxy of Qatar. It's even maybe to some extent a proxy of Malaysia, which gets very little attention. But I would argue that um, the group has really benefited over the last several decades from the largesse of Iran, and it has become a tool of Iran, even as its leaders maintain some semblance of independence from its paymasters in Tehran.
1: And, you know, uh, John, I wanted to ask a question. That's news to me um, when I read the book. You know, for me... um, Uh, people in America look at Hamas as sort of a monolith. They're bad and it sort of stops at that much in the same way that, you know, early on people looked at the the regime in North Vietnam and said, they're bad, we're against them full stop. Could you maybe talk in a little bit more detail about some of the internal contours about Hamas not necessarily being a monolith and having lots of different uh, competing interests involved? Yeah, absolutely. So the group is split. um, In
2: many different divisions, uh, let's call it. So you have the um, leadership that is based in the West Bank. You've got the leadership that is based in Gaza. You've got leadership that's in Lebanon, uh, Turkey, Iran, Qatar. So there's the foreign leadership. There's the military leadership of uh, the group. And then there is what the group likes to describe as its political leaders, but Um, This has been something that I think it's probably important to note, that this has been something that some countries have latched onto. And for example, the Brits uh, up until very, very recently uh, made a distinction between the political and military leadership as if to say one is a terrorist group and the other one is a legitimate government. That is absolutely not the case. They work together hand in hand, but they do have at times differences of opinion about when to go to war uh, or what kinds of tactics to use, not exactly whether or not terrorism is appropriate. That's actually never really been part of the debate.
0: And we, we look back at the sort of public coverage and the discussion over the conflict that emerged. Detractors of Israel say the conflict was sparked by Sheikh Jarrah uh, and then the violence that ensued after that uh, near the Temple Mount. What do you say was the trigger for this conflict?
2: First of all, let's just be clear. Hamas doesn't really need an excuse to launch a war. Um, In fact, there are many times where Hamas fires rockets into Israel and Israel just simply absorbs them, choosing not to respond. I mean, this has been Israel's MO for most of the rockets that have been fired at Israel over the course of several decades now. Um, The Israelis wait for the time and place of their choosing. Now, Hamas can provoke a conflict more directly by firing into the Tel Aviv area or into Jerusalem, Israel's capital. If they start to do that or if they um, attack, um, let's just call it key infrastructure, whether it's a direct attack on the military or kidnapping of a soldier, that will also provoke a war. In this case, um, the media leading up to this conflict kept pointing to the Sheikh Jarrah um, real estate dispute, which, uh, just for full context, has been in the Israeli court system since post-1967. Um, it dates back to actually pre-1948 Israel when Jews bought um, real estate in in eastern Jerusalem, then the Jordanians. Um, Uh, occupied the area from 1948 to 1967. Arabs moved in and then the Jews wanted to get back their property or the property of their ancestors. And, you know, um, what was just remarkable to me was that the media pointed to this longstanding real estate dispute as the reason for the war. My view is that the war was probably put in motion a month before the conflict erupted. And that stemmed from a decision, an ill fated decision by the Biden administration when they first came in to accept the decision of the Palestinians to hold elections in April. Now, that wouldn't sound so controversial, except for the fact that Hamas was slated to take part in those elections. It would have undoubtedly led to a disastrous consequence had Hamas actually been able to take part because it would have meant that Hamas was going to hold seats in the parliament and take part in whatever the next government would look like. And that would trigger um, laws that would defund the Palestinian Authority here in the United States. Um, In fact, set in motion by a guy named Senator Joe Biden. Um, And so there would have been no way to get around that. And so finally, cooler heads prevailed in April. Uh, The U.S. prevailed upon the Palestinians to cancel those elections. But that left Hamas feeling pretty raw, left out of the political arena and looking for a way to make themselves relevant again. And there is no better way for Hamas to make itself relevant than by waging war against Israel.
1: So, So, John, let me I just want to make sure it's clear. So. The the Biden administration caused this conflict, is what you're saying, right? I'm not saying
2: that they caused it directly. What I would say is that they made a, a disastrous decision. And I actually remember talking to a relatively senior Biden administration official when they made the call that they were going to move forward with these elections initially. And I asked, I said, you know, don't you think that it's a bad idea that Hamas is taking part, given that Hamas is a designated terrorist organization here in the United States? And the response that I got was, well, far be it from us, after the disastrous events of January 6th, for us to tell anyone who can take part in an election, what democracy should look like, how it should operate. And I said, look, You're forgetting history. You're forgetting that Hamas took part in elections in 2006, and that led to a civil war in 2007. It led to the United States having to make a call that it wasn't going to recognize Hamas rule in the Gaza Strip. Why are you opening the door again? Now, the the U.S. actually didn't tell the Palestinians to do this, but they agreed to it, and they agreed to it for months, giving Hamas a sense that it was going to be a legitimized player in the political system. And then the rug was pulled out from under them and they were looking for retribution. And in my view, that is a major contributing factor to the war of May 2021.
1: But aren't, I mean, they're a designated terrorist organization. They, they use terrorist tactics. None of this is in dispute. But, but the fact on the ground is they are in control of Gaza, right? They are,
2: and they are quasi sovereigns, if you want to call it that, Right. but I would also argue that they are terrible at governance, um, which by the way, shouldn't be surprising. When terrorists take over territory, they are not good at making the trains run on time. Of course, there are no trains in Gaza, but they're not providing the trash services, the water, the electricity. They are diverting a huge amount of the aid that comes into the Gaza Strip toward um, the building of terrorist infrastructure. And we actually saw that with the labyrinth of tunnels that is commonly now known as the Metro underneath the uh, streets of Gaza that the Israelis ended up bombing during the war. One gets a sense that um, Hamas is really reviled by its own people and has really done the Palestinian national project a disservice in the way that it has ruled the Gaza Strip. And I think it's in part for that reason that the US and now the UK and a number of other countries uh, see the political leadership in Gaza as terrorists, uh, just like the so-called military wing.
0: Did you see Iran's hand in the conflict? And if you did, in what ways?
2: There were overt ways that you could see Iran involved. Um, the, The sorts of statements that they were issuing lauding Hamas for the attacks that it was carrying out against Israel, the 4,000 rockets that were being fired. Um, the uh, We saw the Palestinian Islamic Jihad come out with a new rocket variant that was um, d- directly uh, linked to Iran. It was provided to them by Iran. We saw underwater uh, drones and aerial drones that were purportedly uh, provided um, at least in part. The technicals were provided by Iran. The tunnels were described to me by Israeli officials as being assisted by Iranian engineers. But the, I think the, the thing that, that drove me a little crazy when I watched the coverage of the war here in the United States was, uh, actually, it was several fold. One, all the training that uh, Hamas has received over the years, the commandos the engineers for the building of rockets um, and and other fighting tactics. It's been the culmination of decades of Iranian support. And so even if Iran didn't provide the specific rockets that were fired, the know-how was provided by the regime dating back to the 1990s, right? Decades of support. And that just um, didn't appear in uh, the U.S press or the international press, Um, that and the fact that, you know, the regime provides hundreds of millions of dollars to Hamas and has been doing so um, again since the perhaps even late 80s, early 90s. They've provided training and other support in external jurisdictions like Sudan, like Syria, like Turkey and beyond. And this just did not resonate it did not appear in the US coverage. And um, in my view, that was just irresponsible of those that were covering the conflict here
0: in the West. And when you now reflect back, did they benefit from the war? Did, they, did this help them in any way? And I guess the question could be said of Hamas as well. Did Hamas benefit you know, from the war? You know, did they come out ahead or behind, both Hamas and its sponsor?
2: First of all, Hamas walked away from this war. Uh, every time they walk away from a war still intact is a win, right? I mean, they they know when they go into these wars that they're gonna get pummeled by a regional power and that they don't have the capability to fight Israel in a way that will allow them to win. But when they remain standing at the end defiantly, that's a win for them. But I would say on top of that, Hamas, um, looked as if it was fighting on behalf of the Palestinians, on behalf of Jerusalem in particular, that's the way they framed this. And so therefore it looked like a religious conflict and they ended up kind of taking away the narrative that the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank was the leader of the Palestinian cause. They drew all the attention to them. And you now see the United States and even Israel doing their best to try to rehabilitate the image of Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority trying to refurbish their leadership credentials. And I think that's a testament to the fact that Hamas walked away with, you know, uh, some muscle. Now, as far as Iran is concerned, this is the other, I think, important element that was ignored. There is something that has been happening across the Middle East since, let's say, 2014, maybe even before then. And it's a shadow war that the Israelis have been waging against Iran, and Iran is waging in return. We've seen it as Israel has bombed multiple targets, hundreds, even thousands of targets in Syria, weapons destined for Hezbollah, for Syria itself, where they're trying to establish uh, some uh, military infrastructure to fight Israel in the future, cyber attacks inside Iran, and in some cases, returned inside Israel. assassinations of high profile figures inside Iran, bombings of naval vessels on the high seas, both attributed to Iran and Israel. They call this the war between wars. And it's an asymmetric conflict that has been going on for the last, let's call it seven, eight years. And I would actually argue that the Gaza war was to some extent an extension of that. The Iranians bragged about their ability to draw blood from the Israelis in this regional context. They talked about it before the war and they talked about it after. Now they won't claim direct credit for launching the war, but they certainly will laud Hamas for being one of its arms in the broader context of this battle that I think is only escalating between the Islamic Republic and
1: Israel. I want to ask you a follow-up about something you just said about Hamas ending the conflict intact. What does it mean? What does that look like if they were not intact? Right? So uh, assuming Israel did whatever it had to do for Hamas not to be intact, what does that actually mean? Because I think that, you know, there's a rub there, right? And and I think that that's where it's, when it, when it comes to popular opinion in the United States, I don't think we can wrap our heads around that, What, like, and maybe even the Israeli public. What does that actually mean?
2: It means going into Gaza, boots on the ground, thousands of troops, and dislodging the group from its territory. And just to be clear, this is not something that Israel wants to do. I don't think that we will see this in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, unless Hamas acquires the capability to do strategic or existential damage to the state of Israel, so long as it remains a relatively weak terrorist group. And its I would admit it's a bit odd to call it that when the group can fire 4,000 rockets at Israel in the course of 11 days, and it, it can deploy aerial drones and underwater drones and all of these other technologies that can do damage to Israel. The, um, the assessment so far inside Israel is that it's not worth it. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the bloodshed that they want to keep their powder dry for more dangerous threats like Hezbollah or like Iran itself. And so the Israelis have um, really no interest in going in but that's what it would look like, is thousands of troops inside Gaza destroying, dismantling the, uh, the terrorist organization and then likely remaining there until they can put another power in Hamas's place to rule the Gaza Strip. But imagine how painful that would be for Israel and for Gaza and for the people of the Middle East. It's just not likely to happen anytime soon.
1: You, you two guys are uh, more experts on this topic than me, but I don't, I can't think of another time when it's been done successfully as an occupying power um, installing a government that then worked. But, but I wanted to ask you because we talked a bit about Hezbollah. Um, they, you know, does this conflict have any implications about a future conflict in uh, with Hezbollah, given their much larger missile arsenal on the northern front?
2: Absolutely. So the the war between wars that I mentioned, a lot of it is a battle over whether Iran will be able to um, provide the organization with enough precision guided munitions or PGMs as they're known. These are rockets that Iran has prioritized and that it is trying to send kits to either uh, adjust some of the older unguided rockets uh or in some cases build them from scratch, but the goal will be to provide Hezbollah with an arsenal that is able to attack um Israeli strategic targets. So let's call it, let's say that's the chemical plant in Haifa, it's the Demona reactor in southern Israel, it's the Kiria the sort of Pentagon of Israel's military in Tel Aviv. It's uh, um you know, high density population centers in Israel's small waistline. These are the sorts of things that Hezbollah and Iran would like to attack and Iran is working very hard to make sure that those weapons reach Lebanon and that uh, Hezbollah is able to um, assemble the weapons that it needs for this project. Now the Israelis have been doing everything they can to destroy those rockets before they reach Lebanon. And so that's part of the context of what's going on here. Um, But the other thing that we noted during the war, which, um, you know, didn't get a lot of attention is that there were a handful, about half dozen rockets that were fired out of Lebanon during the conflict. Now, um, they didn't, um, most of them didn't uh, even reach Israeli airspace. And some of them hit only, you know, they were fired into the Mediterranean Sea. Um, The Israelis neutralized whatever rockets did get through, and they responded with some minimal artillery fire. But there is a broader question that needs to be asked, and that is whether Hezbollah is, or Hamas, in fact, are preparing for a two-front conflict in the future. Now, one of the things that I I noted in my book was that um, in 2018, the Israelis submitted a letter to the UN. It was signed by then Ambassador Danny Danone, uh, the uh, Israeli ambassador to Turtle Bay, And he alleged that Hamas was setting up rocket facilities in uh, Lebanon with the intent of doing just that. Um, We understand that there was perhaps even some Turkish involvement, collusion with the Iranians in uh, building these facilities. And one of the concerns that I raise in the book is that perhaps those six rockets were just a, a test of what might happen the next time there's a war in Gaza. And we might see more rockets fired in Israel from the north. Israel might have to respond in a more concerted fashion. And the next thing you know, you might have a two front conflict. And I don't know whether Israel has enough iron dome batteries to deal with that. And I'm not sure that they fully comprehend how brutal that war might be. And in fact, right now we're seeing Israel, they just invested a billion shekels, um, and that's, I guess, about $300 million to um, make the North um, better prepared for such a conflict. I think they're just beginning to grapple with the eventuality that may be around the corner.
0: Clearly one more reason for Congress to move fast uh, on the billion-dollar request of the president uh, to fund additional batteries and interceptors of Iron Dome. John, uh, I want to take a step back a little bit. You talk about this uh, in in the book. There were several controversies that erupted uh, during the conflict um, that really required, uh, I think, a closer examination. You've done that. One of them that stood out was the attack by the IAF uh, on a building that was supposedly used by Hamas as an intelligence headquarters of some kind, but it also happened to house the Associated Press, Uh, and that's what obviously sparked this major controversy in the middle of the conflict. Is there any possible way the Associated Press did not know where it was?
2: I obviously can't speak for the AP, um, but if they are good reporters um, and they're curious, about the area that they work in, you know, they might've wanted to take a look at some of the questionable people that were coming in and out of the Al Jala Tower. Um, Look, it's not like Hamas was going to put its name um, in the lobby and say, oh, you know, fifth floor is the Hamas, you know, uh, iron dome jamming um, facility, which is of course what was there. But um, I I think that we can learn a lot from the previous reports of people like Mati Friedman, who used to work for AP, who has reported in the past that um, AP kept quiet when Hamas fired rockets from near their facilities and they were um, deliberately omitting some of this kind of activity from the reporting in the past. This has been confirmed by one of Friedman's former colleagues. But the other thing that I would just note about that entire controversy is that, you know people don't talk about it now, but Al Jazeera was in that building too. And Al Jazeera is, I think, widely credited for being a legitimate uh, media outlet. I'm not sure that it is. Um, this is an outlet that is owned and controlled by the government of Qatar, which is a sponsor of Hamas. Um, They also happen to be sponsors of the Taliban, of Al-Qaeda, of ISIS. I mean, this is a government that has a nefarious track record with respect to illicit financing of jihadist actors. The other thing that I think is worth noting here is that the United States has, in fact, targeted some of Al Jazeera's assets in war zones like Iraq and Afghanistan, because they happen to have gotten a little too close to the terrorist actors in those war zones, and that there was intelligence suggesting that there may have been collusion. Um, This was something that came up repeatedly as my former colleague, John Hanna, who worked for Vice President Dick Cheney noted in Foreign Policy that the, the clashes that took place between Doha and Washington were frequent during the early years of the war on terror. I look, I don't have specific information about what Al Jazeera did or didn't know Uh, about what was going on in that building. But let's just make it clear that the government of Qatar is not a neutral actor in these Gaza conflicts. They are on the side of Hamas. They put hundreds of millions of dollars behind Hamas. They're political and diplomatic defenders of Hamas. And um, their role can't be ignored.
0: And Qatar, we should note, not formally designated by the United States as a state sponsor of terrorism, uh, despite uh, all the things you just said. Uh, Why is that?
2: You know, it's a good question and one that I've um, (laughs) beat my head against the wall, um, trying to um, reconcile with over the years. Um, The government of Qatar is both the arsonist and the firefighter. They provide important assets to the United States. Um, We have our um, uh, our most important air base in the Middle East based in Qatar. Um, The U.S. military has become probably one of the greatest proponents of the government of Qatar as a result. Qataris also are incredibly wealthy and spend a lot of money investing here in Washington and around the world trying to gain uh, financial allies. Uh, But the problem, of course, is that they do these other things as well in support of jihadist activity. Um, By the way, their illicit activity extends even beyond that. I mean, it's been well documented at this point that they bribed their way to even buying off the World Cup um, uh, next year. Uh, So this is a nefarious regime, but one that I think is able to buy significant influence with their copious amounts of um, energy dollars.
0: Sort of the Swiss bankers of the 21st century.
2: Something
0: like that, yeah. Uh, I want to talk about UNRWA a little bit. You mentioned um, some of the uh, tunnels uh, that exist. Uh, Obviously, some of those tunnels showed up uh, at UNRWA facilities as well. UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency, the so-called Palestinian Refugee Agency, we talk about a lot on the show. You've written a lot uh, about UNRWA. We've actually written some together on it over the years. The Biden administration has restarted funding to UNRWA. The UN is looking to increase uh, the funding to UNRWA actually right now for their next budget. Uh, what role did you see UNRWA playing in the conflict and anything new that you gleaned you talk a little bit about in the book?
2: Sure. So, I mean, first of all, you know, you saw UNRWA issuing statements condemning the uh, the war and, you know, uh, it, it, I think specifically putting the onus on Israel. But it was what happened after the war that was fascinating, you had the Gaza director of UNRWA. Um, come out and actually praise the Israelis for their targeted strikes. In other words, he acknowledged how surgical the Israelis were in the war that they fought. Um, He also made it clear that goods uh, continue to flow into the Gaza Strip so that the Israelis actually were mindful of the humanitarian needs of the people of Gaza throughout the 11 days of this war. Um, And he was really uh, hammered for this by Hamas and by his own people and ultimately became PNG, persona non grata in the Gaza Strip and has actually since moved to Jerusalem because he can no longer operate there. And you got a sense right then and there um, about the restrictions that UNRWA operates under inside the Gaza Strip, which is, of course, no surprise. I mean, if you're operating under the uh, government of a terrorist organization, you're gonna start to self-censor, and you might even begin to virtue signal to the government that you hate uh, the Israelis as much as they do. And you began to see some of that emerge. But the other thing that I think was more important, or perhaps as important, and you uh, referenced this directly, Rich, was the existence of tunnels that were found Um, Alongside or under UNRWA facilities after the war, UNRWA announced that it found these tunnels and apparently Hamas was blocking people from accessing the tunnels. UNRWA came out and condemned them. Um, which I think is the first time that this has happened, at least to my memory. Rich, you may remember otherwise, but I don't think this has ever happened. And they, I think, are beginning to make it clear that they don't want to be involved uh, militarily in these conflicts in the future. And that may be the result of some of the pressure that they're feeling here in the United States and perhaps other capitals around the world.
1: So Egypt Right. Key player in all this. They've historically played a unique role in terms of Gaza and Hamas. How did how did President al-Sisi perform in this last round of fighting between Hamas and Israel? Did he did he give him a grade?
2: Oh, I give him high marks. I give him probably a A minus, which, you know, I, I probably wouldn't give many others that mark during the war. Um, not sure I'd give it to Israel. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, really, the the um, Egyptians understood quickly where the conflict was going. They saw the warning signs. They saw that it was going to happen. They started engaging very early on with the administration um, and then began to do the whole shuttle diplomacy thing between Hamas. Um, And Israel, by the way, also in the Palestinian Authority, the Jordanians, the UN, um, and they were the ones that ultimately achieved the ceasefire, um, which was announced on day nine, um, but not implemented until day 11. Um, And what they ended up doing was they didn't take credit for it. What they did is they handed it They handed that victory, that diplomatic victory, they handed it to the Biden administration. And it was a quid pro quo. They basically wanted the Biden administration to let them out of jail. The Biden administration had not talked to Sisi, didn't want to deal with the Egyptians, really viewed the Egyptians as this anti-democratic force where they had, you know, unfinished business from the Obama administration and, and and they didn't like their anti-democratic tendencies during the Trump administration, and so the Egyptians were really in Siberia diplomatically here um, in terms of the way that the State Department had been dealing with them. This got them back into the good graces of the Biden administration. You know, Biden himself thanked Sisi, thanked Egypt, but I don't think truly acknowledged the significant role that the Egyptians played during this conflict. And it was... Um, Look, I think it was worth it for the Egyptians, but what was remarkable to me is we've actually since then seen the US now weighing additional cuts to Egyptian aid. So you get a sense that perhaps they um, they didn't win over the Biden administration as much as they thought they would have. And um, you know the, the chapter that I wrote about this was that this was Egypt's thankless ceasefire. And the more time that has passed since that ceasefire Um, was uh, implemented, the more thankless it looks. I don't get a sense that Egypt is um, feeling as if it is uh, a full-fledged ally of the United States, despite all of the work that it's done to maintain the ceasefire uh, and to prevent additional violence in the Gaza
0: Strip. You touched a little bit on it, John, but I want to go deeper. Um, Assess for us the Biden administration's role during the conflict, positive, negative, neutral, uh, it was their fault, Rich? No, well, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote publicly that I thought it was impressive that they sort of stayed quiet and they kept the Security Council quiet, you know, for a week, uh, which is not something I expected. Um, but at the same time, you know, obviously there may be other things that they did that were not helpful.
2: I would say that there was um, the the good, the bad, the worse, and 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 the ugly um, is the way that I would probably describe it. The good was that the Biden administration had Israel's back for the majority of the conflict. In fact, for the only meaningful days of the conflict, I mentioned that the ceasefire was announced on day nine, Israel felt like America had its back and we saw Bibi uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Benny Gantz, every IDF official that I saw briefing the public all gave the United States full credit for being an unwavering ally, defending against UN resolutions, defending um, Israel during that the destruction of that um, tower that we just mentioned in the Gaza Strip, um, you know, defending Israel's um, actions uh, with regard to the bombing of the metro system, as it was known that system of tunnels. So the first nine days were 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 really tremendous, and I think Biden deserves full credit for that. The the bad was that. Um, the administration supported these elections before they didn't support these elections and i think that did provoke in part this conflict i think that hamas was furious i think it was a miscalculation on the part of the biden team to support these elections at all um and it was a miscalculation to just simply pull them without dealing with some of the underlying political challenges that exist within the palestinian political arena which by the way i would say is Largely misunderstood by most experts in this field, um, the worst part of it was, in my view, the last two days of the war. After the ceasefire had been announced, that's when the rhetoric from Biden started to get a bit nasty with regard to the Israelis. He was, you know, he start, started, you know, uh, talking about how he was quote done kidding around end quote with Bibi. They started to really kind of crack down on, on the Israelis. It really seemed like there was tension. And there were a lot of leaked stories coming out of the White House that I heard from journalists who were contacting me privately to kind of um, get a readout for what was going on. Why at this late stage, as the rockets were dwindling and Israeli responses were dwindling, why was the rhetoric ratcheting up? So look, I think that there was that rhetoric where Biden looked like he was bending over backwards to please the squad. And I think that was um, a bad sign because the guy did everything that he should have done. He was acting like a a true commander in chief uh, throughout the war and then caved in the last 48 hours of the conflict. And I don't think this bodes well for the president's backbone. When we think about what might lie ahead in the next two, three years of, uh, of, of this first term. Now, the last thing that I would just note when I talk about, you know, there's the good, the bad, the worse, and now here's the ugly. The ugly is that while this war was going on, the Biden administration continued to pursue the JCPOA or some variant thereof, the Iran nuclear deal. And the Israelis were keenly aware of this. And the reason why this was so, I think, problematic was that, look, in 2013, that's when the US entered into the interim deal, the JPOA. And there was a lot of concern back then about the money that was being provided to the regime for just simply staying at the table and negotiating. And there were you know, Israeli concerns that were voiced about how this money might trickle down to Iran's proxies like Hamas or Hezbollah or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. At the time, that was theoretical, and then a war broke out in 2014, and no one really knew whether Hamas benefited from that American largesse at the time. Today, with the benefit of hindsight, and with the benefit of having had discussions with State Department officials and other people throughout the US system, I can tell you that there is no doubt in anyone's mind that money did flow from Iran's coffers to Hamas during the um, period in which the JPOA and JCPOA were in force up until 2018. So what we're talking about now as the U.S. talks about getting back into the deal is America is going to provide Hamas indirectly with money. They know this at this point. The U.S. government understands this that it's gonna be one of the costs of doing business with Iran diplomatically over its nuclear program. And so the next war that happens between uh, Israel and Hamas, assuming we get back into the deal, that will be the first war where the United States knowingly funds both sides. And I have to say that is not a good look for the United States, which has typically uh, embraced this role of broker In the middle east it does not look like an honest broker any longer and i think that's a real problem moving forward
1: so i have two follow-ups on that one because of the statement you just made and then the second if we could talk a little bit of iran because it wouldn't be a limited liability podcast if we didn't talk about the iran deal but i mean isn't that sort of a little bit of a misstatement in that the the united states of america has been buying off regimes in the middle east for Many decades and funding multiple sides of conflicts for many decades in that region, you know the 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 price of stability being propping up regimes that maybe were not so great and maybe having conflicts with Israel over the over the years.
2: Um, I don't know if I would agree with that statement.
1: I know it's a great soundbite, but I, I don't buy it because we've been doing it for years. I, I get why right. why if you're a critic of the JCPOA, and we could talk about that in a minute. Why that's a great thing to say, but I think we've been doing it for years, and I'm not saying i'm I'm in favor of it. I'm just saying like, you know,
2: yeah, I mean, look, I, I would say this that you know, when the us uh, supported both sides of the Iran- iraq war, um, you know, God bless, you know, maybe may they both have a lot of success in undermining their enemy, right? If the idea here is that you're gonna fund an ally and an enemy simultaneously, um, or an enemy's proxy simultaneously, that does not sound like a good idea from the perspective of US foreign policy. It sounds like a disaster, and it certainly will send a message to a lot of our other allies in the region the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Jordanians, the Egyptians they're all gonna wonder what is going on here. And I mean, they already have been when they look at the money that's flowed to the regime. Uh, from 2013 to 2018. It was a disaster for them even then. But when they look at this now and they look at Israel being America's most important ally in the region and understanding that the US is knowingly supporting this kind of activity, it's, um, it's an unraveling of America's foreign policy in the region. And uh, I would just say it, it did not go unnoticed by um, other players in the region.
1: Shifting to the j c p o a if we could, I know rich rich doesn't mind, what's the end game, right? So if the idea here is that the j c p o a or anything that looks like it won't work, right won't compel the Iranian regime to do anything, and that maximum pressure is the only way to go, um what is the end game for the Iranian regime, and I guess as a sub question of that are are they a rational actor in the in the in the foreign policy meaning of the word? Yeah, I think they're a rational actor. I mean, I'll
2: defer to Rich on this because I know Rich has um, obviously spent uh, a heck of a lot more time here, but as a guy that studied their financial activity over the years and their illicit um, uh, nuclear activity, their terrorism support, look, all of this is calculated risk on their part to ensure the survival of the regime. That's the end game. That's all they want. This is a deeply corrupt, corroded, and sclerotic regime, and they know it, but they are doing everything they can asymmetrically, um, I think is, is probably their primary means for doing this, but the idea is just to stay in power um, and to keep their leadership in place. I don't know, if Rich, if you disagree with that, but that's always been my sense. You keep the conflicts further away,
1: so if the if that's the premise, and Rich, you could feel free to disagree because I think you might a little bit. Because if that's the premise, more and more sanctions, which will, but you know, um, I, I get why that that's an attractive option. But if you if you continue to push them to a place of uh, not being able to stay in power, can't more and more sanctions provoke a conflict if they feel like they have nowhere else to go, but but a, but a, a conflict. Well,
0: I, all right, I'll, I'll step in here. I, I, I view them as a revolutionary expansionist power. Okay. Um, their their ultimate goal, in my view, is regional hegemony, you know, and then beyond. Um, I think what John said is correct as far as their bottom line. Any regime like that, it, you know, their priority is regime stability, regime existence, regime continuation. You look at North Korea, look at other, other regimes like that, and so... It's actually why sanctions work in a maximum pressure context, in my opinion, because ultimately they need to make decisions if they're faced with regime collapse to stay in power. If there are no sanctions, if you think you're adopting some sort of containment policy by just keeping them sort of in the box, quote unquote, which means somehow paying them money or getting them greater access to resources, allowing them movement throughout the Middle East. And that's supposed to be some sort of a containment because they've told you, okay, we'll take your money. We just won't build the nuclear weapon yet. Uh, like that's ridiculous because they're going to bank all the gains. They're going to bank all the money and then use that for their expansion as goals. So whatever room you give them, they will, they will take the room, but ultimately their bottom line is to stay in power as John said.
1: So I guess my point is that if the ultimate goal is to stay in power, is it a real nuclear threat because like a nuclear exchange with Israel or a nuclear exchange with the with the United States will will certainly lead to uh, decimation decapitation of their regime so that's why I asked the question as are they a rational actor because uh, a nuclear exchange with Israel or the United States or anybody for that matter is not a rational choice if they're not a rational regime, which that's like a different path. And we can have, a, you know, probably a much longer conversation about that. But like then I get it. Right. Then I, then if they're not a rational actor, then that's scary. Or that's scary. Yeah. Right. Uh, but here's
2: here's my here's my response to that, that, you know, they don't want to use the nuke. They want what, what they would call a nuclear umbrella for all of their other activities. It's the ultimate insurance for them. Right. This is what when they look at, you know, North Korea, Pakistan, Right? They look at these illegitimate governments that are able to maintain power because they have the ultimate weapon. And then by the way, for Iran to continue to uh, pursue its expansionist goals, as Rich described, right, the, uh, the attempt, and, and I would say it's largely been successful right now to expand through Iraq, through Syria, into Lebanon to create what's known as the Shiite Crescent. They will be able to do that more easily with the ultimate weapon in their pocket, right? Israel will not be able to respond to Iran directly for fear of provoking a nuclear war. And so Israel will be relegated to fighting against these proxies which is something that I think Israel has learned over the years has been a losing battle. It's why they've engaged more directly with Iran in what I call the war between wars, You know this asymmetric conflict that I discussed earlier. That's why Israel has been doing it. And I think Iran increasingly understands that it needs that bomb as that um, insurance policy against direct attempts to bring down the regime. They are not looking to have a nuclear exchange they're looking for insurance so that they can continue to pursue their goals across the
1: region. Right. Now, now coming back to the book and to the to Gaza conflict for a second, uh, all politics are local, right? Or so the saying goes, what did, if anything, the, um, the situation around Prime Minister Netanyahu have to do with the conflict and how he responded and how he managed the conflict? He was having a particularly tough time at the uh, when the when the fighting broke out. Did it have anything to do uh, with what was going on with him and his legal challenges?
2: I love that question because the answer is just no. Okay, Um, it it didn't. No, but I mean, I think and I've heard a lot of people say this and I think it's actually really important to address um, there is some kind of conventional wisdom that, you know, B.B. needed to wag the dog, that he wanted this conflict um, as, as a means to keep himself in power. So, first of all, fast forward to after the conflict and what happened to him. He got voted out of office. Right. He actually and it wasn't because he performed terribly during the war. But I think that, you know, there was a sense of like, okay, you know what? This guy hasn't been able to change anything in Gaza for, you know, he'd been in power since 2009, which means that there were four wars that had taken place under his watch and there was no change at all. What from conflict one to two to three to four. And so I think that was part of it. And then the other part of it is that, you know, in Israel, Wars are not popular. They don't, I mean, as much as we see conflict erupt in this part of the world, the Israelis, when you hear, as I did, I mean, I watched most of this conflict on Israeli TV. That's what kind of inspired me to write the book in the first place, was watching the disconnect between Western analysis and what I was watching in Israel. And all the Israelis talked about is how they wanted quiet, right? it. It's the word I probably heard more than any other during the war, in the analysis of the war. And so the idea that somehow this war was a feather in Bibi's cap, I think, was just really erroneous. And it, it really is surprising to me how much this continues to creep into the conversation, um, even after the conflict is done, even after Bibi was voted out by the Israeli people to some extent or another. Obviously, it was coalition politics that ultimately got him out. But um, I don't see the benefit for him. I don't think he did
1: either. Right. And and what do you think of uh, Prime Minister Bennett and how he's doing vis-a-vis this conflict so far?
2: Um, look, he's trying to, I think... Uh, have Shekhet Have... <laughs> yeah he's trying to have check i mean and, and he needs it for lots of different reasons i mean look uh he's talking tough and he's he's actually i mean early on i think he responded to a couple of those um explosive balloons that were launched into israel you know but he ended up you know striking empty hamas targets you know things that had nothing to do with um you know uh hamas strategic um assets but you know his concern, I think, primarily is that if he goes to war, that he might lose the left-leaning um, flank of his coalition. That he might actually break up the government, and uh, and so he's doing everything he can to walk that tightrope and to keep everything, um, you know, stable. I think that's the um, the the word that everybody keeps talking about is how to keep this stable, and then. Uh, The other thing maybe to just note is that um, President Biden is probably his greatest asset. And I don't think that's fully appreciated here in the U.S. or even in Israel. The two of them agree on essentially one thing, and it comes down to three simple letters, ABB, anybody but BB. And so they have this very strange alliance where they are willing to absorb hits from You know, Biden will absorb hits from the uh, from the squad or the Hamas caucus. Bennett will take hits from the Israeli right on decisions to punt on engaging with Hamas. The idea is to just keep this government in place for as long as possible and to keep Bibi out, because the longer Bibi stays out, the less likely it is that
1: he'll be
0: able to return.
1: All right. Lightning round, Rich. Do the lightning round. Let's do the lightning round. We've
0: we, we we've we've taken John through the ringer. Let's let's go lighthearted. Yeah.
1: All right. So, John, first question. Fav- favorite Yiddish word or phrase, and profanity is allowed.
2: Well, actually, it's a it's a phrase that I heard from my grandparents when they were mad at um at people. They would say "gay cock and uffin yam." Go take a crap in the ocean. <laughs> One of my all-time <laughs> favorites,
0: and that is definitely the first time we've heard that here on Limited Liability Podcast. That's yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have a similar favorite Hebrew word or phrase?
2: Um, I'm a big fan of the word bala'gon, which is you know craziness or, or mess. Um, and um, yeah, I'd say that's that's my favorite word.
1: So uh, the scouting report on you, John, says you speak Arabic, and so we're going to ask you for the for the first time in this podcast, your favorite Arabic word or phrase.
2: Oh God, that's um, that's a hard one. Arabic is like a uh, it's a it's an incredibly rich language. Um, I probably shouldn't say this on your podcast, but um, I had an Egyptian friend that um, taught me five different words for fart. <laughs> Um, which I have to say was really shocking to me. It's sort of like Eskimos talking about snow. Um, I'm not going to get into all these words here. Um, we have, can, we have, not, can we have one of them? Well, the, the common word for fart is Zarta. Um, and, um, but there's all these other ones. There's the loud one, which is the Boomba, which, I mean, I, you know. Right, Exactly as it sounds. Anyway, I got into this whole thing with, with my friend when I lived in Egypt in, uh, in 2001. Um, I got the list. I'm happy to provide it for your listeners if they want to get in touch. But um, my favorite, actually, I think my favorite phrase in, um, in Arabic is Bukhrafil Mishmish. Um, which literally means tomorrow the apricots. And the, the idea here is that if you postpone something even by one day, you might lose it because apricots are notorious for rotting on the vine, if you don't pick or on, on the branch, if you don't pick them immediately uh, when they're ripe. Uh, and so that's, that's one of my favorites in Arabic.
0: I love you East Coasters with apricots. It's like so foreign to me. Oh we, say, we, say, we say apricot in Chicago.
2: I think I say both. I, I think.
0: My wife is from Chicago. She says apricots too. I don't understand why, but it, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. Uh, okay, last question uh, on the lightning round. Best food dish you've ever had in the Middle East?
2: Well, Rich, this is one that you've had too. Um, uh, it's an Iraqi fish called mazgut. And uh, it comes, I think it comes out of the Euphrates River. It's like a carp. And uh, it's a freshwater fish, very light, very flaky. And when it's served with the rest of the Iraqi trappings, it's tremendous. I had it actually in the town of Hilla in central Iraq in 2004, and it was incredibly memorable. And then just had it again very recently um, in Riyadh and it uh, lived up to expectations.
0: John Chanzer, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can uh, get his book uh, online, uh, Amazon, anywhere else uh, we, we, we can go for it as well.
2: I think all major booksellers.
0: All major booksellers, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. John Chanzer, thanks for joining us on Limited Liability Podcast.
1: Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get.
0: Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.